Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Well, good evening, everybody. This is Masterclass Theology. I'm Big Rev. You know me as Joel. It's a fun nickname, isn't it? We are in 1 Peter 4. This is actually the seventh session in our series in 1 Peter. And we're in chapter 4 tonight and verses 12 to 19. And it's an interesting text. It's one more text where the reader is suffering in some way. And this is hard. It's hard to imagine it's hard to imagine actively wanting to be a Christ follower in a world that wanted to make its business making your life harder. And yet here they are. There's something about Jesus. There's something about the gospel. There's something about the fact that they could be reconciled with a holy God. There's something about life with a new focus and a renewed meaning in Christ that they wanted because they had to go through so much in the Roman world. Let's open the word of prayer. God, it's just an honor to be able to teach this lesson tonight and to look at the concept of joy even in the midst of pain and in the midst of suffering and in the midst of just the confusing world we live in and that they lived in. And we just thank you for this text, God. I thank you for the men and women on this journey with me in Zoom, in person, and in podcast land. We're just uh, so grateful, Lord, for your word. And we pray that we're challenged and encouraged. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. We start with the great re-image. You guys ever, uh, I remember going to Chuck E. Cheese a long time ago, back, back, back when you can go to such places easily. And my son must have been, I don't know, three. It's one of those things where you buy a bunch of tokens and then he eventually grows tired of the games and goes to play on the free swing set that's inside the Chuck E. Cheese and you're sitting there with like 40 more tokens. Like, like we bought you all these tokens, kid. You know, you're just, so we, we, we have to find new ways to spend these tokens. So we sit down at the little picture drawer thing where you sit in the seat, you put the coin in the slot, you press a certain button, and then uh, the little Chuck E. Cheese guy on the screen draws a picture of you and whoever's in the seat next to you. And it's, you know, it's not bad, I guess. Back in the day, a simple dot matrix printer probably could have done it. But yeah, it, but it, you're, you're not looking at that and going, wow, this is a good picture. It is a really cheap, kind of hokey new image of you, like a re-image. And we're going to look at the idea that I think is actually going to blow your mind, a blue mind, of, of how to view your life, how to kind of re-image yourself. And I'm not talking about your look or your hair or your makeup or your, I'm not talking about that, but to re-image your story. And it's actually kind of cool. But the great re-image, verses 12 and 13. Again, we're in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Ooh, don't be surprised. It's 
Um, don't think it's a foreign thing. That, oh, I'm going through so much. Don't think this shouldn't happen to me. Um, don't you know where you live? You live in an unbelieving world. They rejected Jesus. He died on the cross because of political pressure and religious pressure. And the will of God, of course. But from a purely secular standpoint, it was politics and religion that put him on the cross. From just a, from just a pure secular standpoint, from a human standpoint, it's like Jesus said, they rejected me, they persecuted me, they're going to project, they're going to, they're going to come after you too. I mean, they went after the teacher or the master, they're going to come after you. So don't think this is a foreign thing. I'm going through so much, I just don't understand why. Um, are you at home in your city? Is that your home? Is... Is this a place where you're just expecting not to have any hostility? I'm talking to the, the original recipients here. I mean, you're going through a lot, but at some point you kind of signed up for it because you chose Jesus over Caesar. And so Caesar's not going to be happy. So don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. This is not an abnormal thing that you're being persecuted by the world, which is why we're told in John, in, in 1 John, do not love the world or anything in the world. The world is not your friend. So don't think it's strange that, that this is happening to you. But rejoice, verse 13 says, inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Wow. So my first comment here is to pick your fire. So you're going through a fiery ordeal. What's worse, the fire you go through in these circumstances? Or what's another fire? The fire of hell. I mean, really, you are with Christ. You will not, you will not experience eternal punishment. You're going through a fiery ordeal now, and that ordeal stinks. And you're going through a really, 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 really rough season. But pick your fire. Have some perspective. You're going through a rough stretch, but you belong to Christ. You're not going to spend eternity in punishment. This fiery ordeal that we go through, it's just don't be surprised that it's there. It's not like we're pleased about it. Oh, please, world, persecute me. No, we, we don't have a complex. It's not like we're just looking for it. But we're not surprised when it happens. The more I deny myself, the culture doesn't understand why. Why in the world are you not living for yourself? Just do it, Nike says. Just go get it. Why are you not, I don't understand why you're rejecting yourself. I don't understand why you're living for this guy that died. And he, I mean, seriously? Yeah, pick your fire. These fiery ordeals aren't fun, but they give us opportunities to trust God, don't they? Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you. Oh, yes. There's a testing about this fire. Huh. Seriously? God, when I go through suffering, is it possible you could be at work? Oh, snap. Okay. Okay. Remember we used to sing that song? Refiner's fire. My heart's one desire. The idea of a refining fire. 
where you've got this precious metal and some metals can withstand the fire. And when you put it in there, the impurities get burned away in the flames and all you're left with is the pure product or a purer product, the refining process. Are you saying there's something about my suffering that might be God doing something with that? Keep that on your mind. All of a sudden, that's now an option. Okay, Peter. All right, we see what you're doing here. Okay. All right, don't be surprised at this fiery ordeal that's come upon you to test you. Okay. Maybe we're going to have more of that as, as the text goes on tonight. Maybe we're going to get another chapter to that story. I hope so. Um, experience Jesus. See your story with his. A lot of people want to experience Jesus. There was, you know, 20 years ago, there was a book called Experiencing God that made its rounds. I mean, you go to churches, and I, I know at our church, we have our mission. We want to connect you with God. We want to have a connection there with you and God and people and with service. We want, we're, we're very, our world is very concerned about your experience. And so, you know, review sites like a Yelp are there, or you can give your review of this. How was your experience with us today kind of thing? Now, we don't treat Jesus that way, as in he is just an experience to be sampled and rated and given five stars and that kind of stuff. No, but we get a flavor of something deeper here. Because, well, verse 13, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Boom, there it is. See your story with his. So if I'm already being refined by this fire, I think, where if that's the case and I'm going through really hard times, but God is at work in me, then that tells me that just like the kind of, you know, impure gold becomes purer gold, that tells me that there's something about me that's going to have a benefit. No, this is not a purgatory. Purgatory is, is always something that's after death. This is, and this, this is not a definition of purgatory here. This is this is something different, as in there's something in me that God is working on. And there's a benefit here. That though I'm going through something that I, I don't care for, I'm going through a suffering of some state, there, in an ultimate sense, there's a benefit here. So experience Jesus, see your story with his. Okay? My story with his. Okay, inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. So you're participating in the sufferings of Christ. What in the world does that mean? Christ suffered and died. Okay, so we don't participate in the sufferings of Christ for salvation's sake. Because the work of Christ is done. Correct? It's finished, he said. Okay, so he doesn't have to suffer anymore. That's done. So we're not looking at a big pile of mashed potatoes as Jesus is suffering and say, okay, now he's going to suffer more. Plop, I'm going to keep adding to that pile. Look, we can keep adding to the work of Christ. Here we go. Here we go. And if I suffer too, that means that I'm a part of that process too. No, that's going to make us a little bit part of the salvation process here in terms of the suffering. That kind of suffering was kind of, it was done. It was finished. But we can't mistake the fact that Christ did suffer. And both Paul and Philippians and Peter here is telling us that there's something about our story when we suffer and we belong to Christ. All of a sudden, our stories link up. Now, not in the same way. Like I said, his suffering led to our salvation. Our suffering does not. But Peter says here, 
you participate in the sufferings of Christ. And because of all that, or so that, the text says, you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So that tells me, as I go through suffering right now, I'm now re-imaging my, so, my story. I'm now seeing this story through a new lens. I'm now re-imaging all this. And I'm saying, aha, yes, I'm going through a hard time. Yes, I'm suffering. Life does stink. It sucks. It's horrible. I'm going through all these things. But I belong to Christ. So now I'm re-imaging my story through that lens. I'm suffering, and my suffering joins me with Jesus. We have that same story. He depended upon God during his suffering. I depend upon him during his, during mine. So you rejoice because when his glory is revealed, that's kind of Peter's code word for the, the end times. So now you have this end times perspective to the junk you're going through right now. Well, my kids aren't talking to you, or my grandkids are doing this, they're, they're addicted to this, or this guy won't stop his addiction. This one here won't forgive. This one here won't trust God. I'm going through all these things. I'm struggling with this and with that. You're going through all these things, but remember, as we suffer, there's an end times hope, a perspective to our today problems. Especially, especially if we're suffering because of Christ. The great re-image. Next we have the ultimate acceptance. Verse 14. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So who has rejected you? In this case, society rejected them. This is not just an insult as in, oh, this person is just a jerk and I'm just going to give them an insult. Like you see in the old, like the old like medieval ones where the guy takes off his gauntlet and he you know, smacks the guy across the face. I demand restitution or satisfaction. You've, you've insulted me. No, this is more a deeper insult. This is, you are an outcast. You are, who's rejected? It's like a full rejection. I mean, that's quite an insult. So you are now an outcast? Wow. Society has rejected you. You're an outcast. And so we're not surprised when, when Peter talks to the exiles. They've been exiled. Their home is not really their home because their home is rejecting them because of Christ. Who has rejected you? Uh, who has accepted you? You see, we have this true state Let's just read the verse again. If you are insulted, we'll just, if you've been rejected, if you're in exile, if you're an outcast because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. What? Yeah, because you had this real state about you. And that real state isn't rejected outcast. That real state is accepted and approved and blessed by the Holy Spirit himself. The glory of God rests on you. You see... When you belong to Christ, the world may reject you. But more importantly, God has not rejected you. Ah, so now I've got another perspective. Now as I go through the fiery ordeals that I have to go through, number one, I, I, I'm on Jesus' team because he went through fiery ordeals. He went through suffering. The world beat on him, literally. 
And now I'm going through these things, and now my story is linked up. I can re-image myself with Jesus, and now I've been accepted. So, when we're told not to fear the world, that means instead of being accepted by Christ, my whole self-image, my whole worth is not centered in the world. It's centered in the very God who accepts me, who gives me that worth, who, who, who places that value upon me as his image bearer, dang. There's the great re-image and the ultimate acceptance. In an ultimate sense, Christian, it doesn't matter what the world does to you. You belong to Christ. We cannot forget that. Especially as our world and our society keeps going to hell in a handbasket. As each new news cycle depresses the heck out of you or causes you to chew your fingernails or pull out your hair or whatnot. we got to remember that. As each new society invents ways to make our life harder, or to label us, or to assume things about us. The great re-image, the ultimate acceptance, and now the right crime. What? Yeah. Verses 15 and 16. If you suffer... See, I guess there was a possibility that Peter's, Peter's saying, if there, you may not be suffering. Okay. Again, we're not like masochists. We're not looking for suffering. We're not looking to get our tails whipped. We're not, okay, I'm not suffering. I must not have much faith. Let's go get in trouble. And let, so I can now say that I'm suffering. No. No, that's the silliness. We're, we're not doing that. We're not living life for ourselves. Or what people think about us. Uh-oh. Did I just say that? I kind of did. What people think or say about us, that leads to anxiety a lot. When we, we, when we invest there, we struggle about that. I see some anxiety possibilities here. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief. Okay, so, so Peter uses two big categories. Murderer and thief. So everybody's going, well, of course you're suffering. You're languishing in prison. You just committed murder. Or you stole something. Are you, are you kidding me? Oh, I'm such a murder. I'm suffering. No, you got the law. I mean, I mean, he chose two big words there. Murderer or thief. Or any other kind of criminal. Okay, so he kind of hedges his bets there, doesn't he? If you're suffering because you've broken the law. Just saying. Or even as a meddler. A meddler... It's kind of an interesting idea. I don't want to say this is like a modern day Karen, but it kind of is, where somebody knows the right and the wrong and they insert their nose in other people's business to the point that the other people are tired of it and they react. It's possible that some of the Christians in this society were just, they just were going to reject idolatry so much and they were going to go after their neighbors and friends and there's those beliefs so much to the point that the neighbors and friends were like, enough. We've had it with you meddling in our business. And so they persecute. We get this idea with this meddler. It's a great translation. So if you're suffering because you've committed murder or you're a thief, okay, bad stuff, or any other crime, okay, okay, or you kind of just keep getting in other people's business, so much so that the other people have had enough. Again, we're talking about pagans here. Here it is. Um, if that's you, um, it should not be that way. If you suffer, don't suffer for those reasons. However, 
if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So we have one suffering that produces shame. I define shame. The difference between guilt and shame, um, this is not my definition. I heard this and I kind of like it. Guilt is, if you have a guilty self-talk, you'd be saying to yourself, I did something bad. That's guilt talking. Shame, a shame self-talk would say, I now am something bad. Not that I have done something bad. I feel guilty about this. No, no, I am something bad. There's no real use for me. You can see how depression just immediately jumps in there. Shame is a very judgmental thing. Depression leads to shame a lot. Because in your depression, you automatically go to shame. You automatically go to judgment. Your first move as a depressed person, and, I, and I'm saying this from experience, is to heap that judgment upon yourself. I'm just a horrible father. Look at this. I just can't believe I did this. Or boy, I'm a horrible husband. Or I can't, if I was a better friend, I wouldn't have felt this way. You immediately go to shame. But we have one crime leading to one suffering that produces shame. It's like you're, you, you broke the law and you're going through something and you feel bad. Okay, that's different than you didn't break the law, you just held on to Christ. And now you're suffering. See, there's no shame with that. There's no shame with, with giving glory to God. No matter how much our society wants to shame, there is no shame in that. Instead, you're actually praising God. One suffering produces shame or leads to shame. The other one produces praise. However, in verse 16, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, no matter how much they say otherwise. These are good words. For the one who's suffering with shame, and there are a lot of people listening to this right now that have gone through shame. You feel ashamed for very many things. If you've broken the law, if you've done something horrible and you have not repented, that shame is working on you. If you have repented and you've given it to Christ, He has borne your shame. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. We get this idea that I'm bearing the very name of Christ, so even though the world's coming after me, I can hold my head up high a bit. Not in a look-at-me way, but as in a, I'm giving glory to God. So you have the great re-image, the ultimate acceptance, the right crime, and now the judge's standard, 17 to 18 of chapter 4. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And it begins with us. Mic drop. Judgment starts with the church. What? Why would I become a Christian if all of a sudden God's now going to judge me? Don't, don't I get enough judgment out there? And this is God saying through Peter that judgment's going to start with his house? I mean, seriously, you can think about this. You may have had, you know, kids, your kids growing up, or you may have had this or that, and the kids may have had, you know, friends that weren't Christian, and those friends and those friends' as parents and those households did things a different way, didn't they? And you're saying to yourself, well, we don't do things that way, that your kid comes back and, and is saying, well, you know what, little Johnny's house, they say, they say God's name in vain, or they, they say these things, and Where'd you hear that word? Well, they said it over at Susie's house. Uh, really? And we want to judge at that point. But wait a minute. Judgment here is starting with the house of God. 
So they don't belong to Christ. So God's starting this judgment with us. There's this, I, and Paul speaks about this as well in the Corinthian letters. We get this idea that judgment's starting first with us. That God is, and we, we see that in, in, in an end time sense. You've got a great white throne judgment. You've got the Bema judgment. So you've got these two different judgments. And one of them is like a heaven and hell judgment. And the other one is not a heaven and hell judgment. It's a heaven judgment. Okay. The judge's standard for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Okay, that gives me, uh, that gives me something there. That tells me that if God is actually judging his household, and if someone is belonging to God's household, this is no longer a heaven and hell thing because they belong to Christ. But there's still a judgment that tells us, can I use an old-timey word, it behooves us to pay attention. If God's at work, and God is at work in a judgmental way, oh, don't judge me. No, this is, this is God's judging. A sinless, perfect judgment. Okay, pay attention. And the gospel changes everything. Peter quotes Proverbs 11 here. So let's just read 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and it begins with us. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, it is, and if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? It's Proverbs 11. Yeah. Man. See, the gospel changes everything, or it better. If you've responded to the gospel, there is no area of your life that is allowed to be untouched by the gospel. You admit you're a sinner. You trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. You commit your way to him, confessing your sins, repenting of your ways. Every now, every now part of your life, every relationship in your life, every section or corridor or quadrant or room of your life, whatever it is, is now affected by the gospel. You were forgiven a great debt, and you could do nothing to earn it or pay for it or nothing it was just by grace you are saved. So now you need to be a gracious one. You have been reconciled to God. Now you must be a reconciler. See, that's the gospel. Someone who also gives grace to the one who doesn't deserve it. Remember, we learned this in, the, in, the, in our journey in Hosea. Grace is undeserved. You never deserve grace. Grace is always shown to the people who do not deserve it at all. Hosea, buy back Gomer. Just remember, we are Gomer. You are your greatest enemy. That's why you must deny yourself and follow Christ. Never forget that. The judge's standard is the gospel. So pay attention because the gospel changes everything. If we who follow the gospel, who obey the gospel... Who, who indeed follow what the gospel expects of us, if even we are going to have to give some kind of an accounting to face some kind of a judgment or some kind of a reckoning of sorts with God, if even we have to go through that, just imagine those who don't belong to Christ. I mean, am I allowed to say crispy critters there? I mean, it's... I'm just saying, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? That should break our heart, but it should also wake us up. 
the judge has a standard. The gospel changes everything. So pay attention. When you're going through suffering, pay attention. What's going on with that? Could this be that judgmental refining? Could God be at work? Could this be something where God is intentionally leading you through this season for a reason? Could this be the case? I don't know. I'm not inside your heart. I'm not going through what you're currently going through the way you're going through it. All I can do is invite you to ask questions about your experience and give you perspectives to maybe challenge how you view things and to see yourself as a part of something greater. Verse 19, commit and continue. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. I'm not allowed to hate a verse of the Bible. And I don't hate this one. But I kind of hate where I have to go with it to be faithful. Those who suffer according to God's will, commit to that God. Commit to the one who ordains your suffering. You don't suffer according to man's will. You don't suffer according to your own will. The text is clear. Those who suffer according to God's will. There is a category of person who is suffering because, simply because God has ordained it. I don't see here God allowing it. This is God's will. This is an ordination of things. He's decreeing it. This is God's, you know, we, I, and I can speak boldly like that because of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. There's a certainty that is like ironclad on earth as it is in heaven. Ironclad. It is assumed that God's will is done in heaven. Boom. Done. His will is done. All of heaven, like, yes sir. Right away, sir. Boom. It's, it's done yesterday. That's our prayer. That that certainty be done here. That's God's will. Can you commit to the one who's ordaining your suffering? Can you? You who have had to suffer, can that suffering lead you back to God? Can you view that suffering and go, I still love you, God? You know what you're doing, God? I don't understand why, but you do, and that's enough, God? Can you commit to the one who's ordaining your suffering? I've had MS for half my life. I've wrestled with this question for years. Can you commit yourself to that very God? whose very will is it for you to suffer? Can you? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator. He's still faithful even if my life is horrible. He's still faithful even if I still have to deal with the same suffering. Can I still see God as faithful even if I have to keep going through this? And I may not ever get an answer to my why, or my why still, or my why now, or my why aren't you hearing my prayer, or all my lamentations. I don't get a satisfactory answer beyond this. Can I commit myself to this faithful God and still see him as faithful? If you can do that, that is faith with teeth. There it is. 
That's a heck of a story, if you can do that. That's a heck of a re-imaging, where you now am able to see your suffering as in the hands of Almighty God. That is along the lines of Gethsemane. Jesus suffering, but not my will but yours be done. I'm just saying, it's not equal because you're not Christ and you're not paying for a salvation, but I'm just saying that's a story that links up. That's a perspective that can now link up. He trusted in the Father, so can you. Can you still commit yourself and see him as faithful? And then the faithful God expects a certain kind of disciple. Continue to do good. I like how Jesus put it, let your light shine so that people see your good works and praise your Father. Who's, who's defining the good works there? I think the people are. Our neighbors. Continue to do good. Can you be a blessing to people? Can you live in a certain way that they see it as good? No, it's not the equal of the things that God says is good, but commit yourself to God and continue to do good. Can you be a blessing? Can you actively care for people? Can you do good? Could that be the way you live your life as you trust God in the midst of your horrendous suffering? Can you do that? I think that's a really good perspective to have. Even the people who don't belong to Christ, even the people who are actively persecuting you, even the people who don't understand why you live the way you do, can you seek to bless them? Can you seek to do good? That's huge. We end with joy. Joy is an attitude. Joy is a response. Joy is an identity. And joy is a perspective. There's so much wrapped up with joy. It takes it beyond happiness. Happiness can just be a, a subjective thing for a season or whatnot. Joy never leaves you alone. You can have joy if you suffer half your life and never get a satisfactory answer. Why? Beyond verse 19. Just saying, there's something about you that's different because you belong to Christ, and that difference starts with joy. And as we're told, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Yes. That is your attitude. That is your response. You cannot control what other people do to you. You can control how you respond. That's me talking to a nine-year-old. That's me talking to my five-year-old. That's me talking to me. You can control your response, your attitude. Do good. So what now changes in you as you've been convicted to re-image? As you've been accepted by God, as you, uh, you, you, you seek to praise God in the midst of your suffering? Let me ask it this way. I am suffering. I have three categories for that answer. Joel, I'm suffering. Okay. First question. Have you done something legally wrong? And that's why you're suffering? It's a fair question. No. Okay. Is this a rejection of you by society because you belong to Christ? Specifically because of Christ? Like they would go after Jesus, but they don't have Jesus. They go after you who belongs to Jesus. Is that why you're suffering? Maybe. But for the sake of argument, no, I haven't broken the law. No, I don't feel like I'm being persecuted, but I'm suffering. Thank God we have a third category now. Could God be at work in you? Could God be at work in you during this season? 
What is God therefore expecting you to learn? Let's just be honest. Joel, you mentioned your stinking MS. You're 43, you got diagnosed at 21, that's half your life. What has God been teaching you? Okay. Has God been refining you? Okay. Has God been judging you for a purpose? Okay. I tell you what I've learned. I've learned to trust him no matter what. I've learned that in my weakness, especially in my 20s, those invincible 20s, when I was first diagnosed, they were very invincible. I just made up a word. Very invincible. I learned to trust God. I learned to depend upon God. That's a faith like a child. I learned it in my 20s. Relearned it in my 20s. What was God doing in me? He was dragging me out of my selfishness back to him. Breaking down the walls of, of, of all the things I was going through. God was at work in me. It wasn't so much as, so what's God trying to teach you? God's not trying to do anything. God is God. God doesn't try. What's God expecting you to learn in your suffering? I had a lot I needed to learn. I've got a lot I still need to learn. But the one thing God did in me throughout this season, and it's been one heck of a long season, is he taught me to trust him. My faith trusts God. It is the strongest part of me. I will never give up on God. He's never given up on me. I learned that in my suffering. If you suffer, God just might be at work. Pay attention. This has been Big Red for Masterclass Theology, 1 Peter chapter 4. God bless. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.